Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from our God and our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption, and through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him, we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him and uh, with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you, Lord, for, uh, for the ways that you have orchestrated that we be here uh, today, uh, for the ways that you have uh, begun these, this, uh, early, these early stages of, of planting your church in East Harlem. Uh, God, I pray that this passage uh, from Ephesians would be an encouragement to us as we embark on this new endeavor together. Uh, in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, so over the uh, next few weeks, we're actually going to be looking at uh, different passages in the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians, uh, all of which will culminate to our, um, our actual launch, which is on October 13th, where we will begin unpacking a bit more who we are as a church as it relates uh, to Ephesians 13, or 13, Ephesians uh, 3. Uh, and what we're going to be looking at now over the course of these next couple of weeks is some of the things that Paul tells us about who the church is and why the church exists. Now, the context for the book of uh, Ephesians is that the Apostle Paul is writing uh, to the church in Ephesus. Uh, this church we see started in Acts 18, and it's this growing, vibrant church, very early in church history. And what we see is Paul, uh, particularly in chapters 1 through 3, uh, essentially laying out his great ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church, what the church is. Uh, and we see this throughout the book, but particularly in this first half, uh, where Paul is unpacking, again, why the church exists. Now, on this Sunday, this very first Sunday uh, for us together, it seems appropriate to consider what exactly it is that Paul is describing here and in, in why the church exists, the purpose of the church. And here's what I find to be particularly interesting, is that what we're going to see 
uh, as we look at the purpose of the church, we're also going to discover that our purpose, our individual purposes, why we specifically exist, is actually very much tied to the purpose of the church. That God's purpose in us and through us and what he desires for us is very much tied to the church itself. And that essentially brings us to one of the most universal questions that is asked by man, by people, by all humanity. Uh, Since the dawning of man, we have uh, wrestled across uh, cultural lines and religious lines and generational lines, some of the greatest thinkers and philosophers that the world have ever known, uh, all the way down to the lowliest of peasants. Everyone has wrestled with this central question of why do we exist? What is our purpose in life? And what's interesting to me is that it really doesn't even matter what background you come from or what your perspectives on God might be, we all wrestle with this question in various ways. Uh, so for those who believe in a God, often this, this question comes down to, well, what is uh, God's plan and purpose in the universe? What does God desire? Others who maybe are more agnostic, aren't really sure if there's a God, they might more ask the question, well, is there even a purpose to discover? And then, of course, you have those who would reject the idea of God, atheists, humanists, uh, who think about this idea in more of a, well, what purpose can I create for myself? But regardless of where one comes from, the bottom line is we all wrestle with this question of purpose. And again, what we see here in Ephesians 1 is Paul giving us the Christian perspective on purpose. And that's what I want us uh, to hopefully see, that there is this God— who has created all things, who knows all things, who judges all things, who has established his church and has given us breath, brought us here together, he has a purpose and a reason for doing that. And that's what I hope we see. And maybe we can think about it this way, because it's helpful for me to think about it this way. Um, Think about an assembly line. Uh, so often, we know the, the famous assembly line makes modern cars what they are, what, what possible. You know, on an assembly line, everybody has a different role to play. Right? So you've got a guy who's uh, in charge of uh, installing the engine, someone else that's in charge of mounting the doors or placing the windshield, whatever it might be, all have different jobs. But here's what's interesting. Those jobs seem pointless and meaningless. They feel mundane if you don't know what a car is. Right? If you don't have a concept of what the ultimate goal is, uh, that job can feel purposeless. And so what I want to do, I want to show you God's car, the ultimate purpose of why we all exist. All that said, we're going to look at three questions in particular that Paul's highlighting here. First, uh, let's just consider quickly, what are some of the things that God's doing Uh, Then we're going to take a look at how God has done it, and then last, we're going to see why. That'll get us to our central question of purpose and why. So first, what what is God doing? All throughout this passage, there are a ton of different things that God has done. Let me just show that to you quickly. So verse 3 says that God blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing. Verse 4 says that he chose us. Verse 5 says that he adopted us as sons. Verse 7 says that he redeemed us and forgives our sins. Verse 8 says that he gives wisdom and understanding. Uh, Verse 9 says that he made known to us the mystery of his will. 10 says that he brings unity to all things. 11 
that he works out everything uh, in conformity with the purpose of his will. 13, we were uh, given the gospel message in the Holy Spirit. Verse 14 tells us that we're guaranteed an inheritance throughout this passage. Paul is describing all kinds of things that God is doing and has done. But then the second question is, well, then how has God done it? So if those are the things that he's done, how has he gone about doing it? We also see that in our passage. So verse 3 says that he blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Verse 4 says that he chose us and adopted us as sons and that he did it through Christ. Verse 7 says that he redeemed us, that he forgives our sins, that he gives understanding, uh, wisdom and understanding. Verse 9 says that he made known to us the mystery of his will. Again, he's done it in Christ. Uh, verse 10 says that he brings unity to all things under Christ. Verse 11 says that he works out everything uh, in conformity with the purpose of his will in Christ. Verse 13 says that in Christ we were given the gospel message and the Holy Spirit and that we're guaranteed our inheritance. I mean, essentially what we see here over and over again is that we see that what God is doing, he is doing in and through and under Christ. Now, what exactly does that mean? This term in particular in Christ. Well, in Christ is one of the ways that Paul essentially summarizes the entire gospel message. That what God is doing, he does through the person and the work of Jesus. And if you were to summarize that, essentially in Jesus's life, Christ comes and he lives the life that you and I, we couldn't live. Uh, and then he in his death, dies the death that you and I should have died as a result of our sin. But then he rises again, conquering both sin and death, so that we too might one day have hope that we will experience uh, the absolute defeat of both sin and death. And so Paul here is saying that everything that God is doing, he is doing through Christ, through the work of Jesus. And that's actually very important for us to remember that we can't ever forget that God is doing all that he is doing, not through any efforts of our own or not through any work that we might be able to accomplish, but that he does it through Jesus. And this is one of the things that makes Christianity unique compared to all other religions and philosophies, that it's not something that we do, but rather it's something that's been done on our behalf. Christianity, in essence, is that Jesus has performed and has accomplished the work that you needed to uh, perform and uh, accomplish, but we're not able to. He does it on our behalf. And this is something we must constantly be reminding ourselves of. This is what it means to be in Christ. Okay, so God's doing a lot of things. He is doing all of it through the person and work of Jesus. But now let's get to that last question of why, which is our ultimate question of purpose. Why has God done all of this, and why has he done it through Jesus? And how does that relate to my life? How does that relate to our church? Why has God done it? Again, we see it in our passage. So, verse 3 tells us that he blessed us. Verse 4 says that he adopted us. Uh, or, I'm sorry, that he chose us. Verse 5 says that he adopted us as sons. And then verse 6 tells us why. It's to the praise of his glorious grace. Verse 7 says that he redeemed us, that he forgives our sins. Verse 8 says that he gives wisdom and understanding. 9, that he's made known the mystery of his will. 10, that he brings unity to all things. 11, that he works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. Verse 12 tells us why. It's for the praise of his glory. Verse 13, we were given the gospel message and the Holy Spirit. 14, we were, uh, were guaranteed our inheritance. Again, we're told why. 
and 14. It's to the praise of his glory. See, God does all that he does. He has brought you to this place. He has established his church here in East Harlem, ultimately for the praise of his glory. All that God does, he does for his glory to be known and seen in us and through us and through our church. This is God's great plan. This is the car. This is what all things point to. I mean, since the beginning, when God set the cosmos into motion, when he breathed life into humanity, when he ordered the steps of history, when he came in the person and work of Jesus, when he established his church, and particularly for us, Redeemer East Harlem, when he gave you life, when he placed you in New York City, and why he's brought you here now this morning, all of it has been done for the praise of his glory. Everything is for the praise of his glorious grace. Now, I do realize maybe that for some, that could be a very big claim. And that is a very big claim, that everything that God does and everything that has happened is ultimately for his glory. And there's a couple of potential objections I could imagine there being to that idea. The first one would just be is that Everything that I just described is largely coming from Ephesians 1, that it's essentially just one passage. And so can we rightfully say that God does all that he does for his glory when it's really only being drawn out from one passage? Well, the response to that would just simply be this, that this idea that God does what he does for his glory, ultimately for his glory, is actually one of the greatest themes within Scripture. You see it time and time and time again, over and over again. Let me give you some examples. In the Old Testament, uh, it says in Isaiah 43 that God created us for his glory. In Psalm 106, it says that God rescued Israel from Egypt for his glory. In Exodus 14, it says that God defeated uh, Pharaoh by the Red Sea for his glory. In Exodus 36, it says that God restored Israel from exile for the glory of his name. If you fast forward to the, the New Testament, uh, Matthew 5, Jesus told us to, that we ought to do good works so that God would get glory. Uh, in John 14, Jesus said that he answers uh, prayers so that God would get glory. In John 12, this is an interesting one. In John 12, Jesus says that he endured his final hours of suffering for the glory of God. That one's interesting. That even, even suffering and heartache and pain bring glory to God. We're going to pin that for a second. We'll come back to that. Uh, in Second uh, Thessalonians 1, Jesus is coming again for the glory of God. In Revelation 21, we're told that in the new Jerusalem, the glory of God replaces the sun over and over again. All throughout the scriptures, we see that God does everything that he does for the praise of his glory, that he might be known and seen as glorious. So that's one potential objection. It's not just in Ephesians 1. It's all throughout Scripture. The other one, getting back to the suffering thing, is, well, what about all the bad stuff that happens? If God wants to be glorified, why would he allow suffering? Why would he allow bad things in the world to happen? And that's a good question. That's a hard question, but it's the right one. The only, the only way that I think that we can answer that is actually a couple passages. One that's here in our passage. So in verse 11... It says that in him, 
We were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. So you've got that idea that God is doing everything according to his, his will. And then you've got passages like Romans 8, 28, a famous verse, which just says that uh, we know that all things God works for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. You know, for the Christian, here's what is important to know, that the Bible teaches that God does all that he does. He allows all that he allows. He accomplishes all that he accomplishes through Jesus. He does all of this for the praise of his glory because in the end, long term, everything works out, both good and bad. Everything works out for our good and for his glory. And that includes even the most difficult and painful of life's circumstances. It's hard to understand and to see why God would allow certain things, but there is hope that we are given that he is doing something in the long run where in the end it will be for our good and for his glory. And what's what can be both uh, hopeful but also frustrating is that there may actually be suffering and situations where we never will fully understand or know why God allowed it to happen. Our suffering may even bring us to the point of death, and we may not ever know why God allowed it. But there's hope in knowing that in the end, long term, God is in control of all things, that his will will be worked out, that there is no way for anything, including evil and suffering, to thwart the plans and purposes of God, that he has control, and that in the end, it will be for our good and for his glory. But I know that so often we resist and we reject that idea because sometimes it just doesn't make sense. We desperately desire to know the depths of the knowledge of God as though if God, God owes us some kind of explanation for the things that we experience. But wouldn't it be the case that if God is God, if he truly is God, who knows all things and sees all things, that he would have reasons for allowing things that we just could not possibly understand or know. And wouldn't it also fit that we ought to then trust that whatever he is doing, that it's going to ultimately be for our good, for his glory, the good, the bad, and the ugly. But that also brings me back now to some of our like personal callings and our personal purposes, the things that you are You know, God has gifted you and wired you in such a way, a particular kind of way. You have, uh, you and I, we have certain personalities that are kind of built into us. We are talented in certain ways. We have the families that we have. We have experienced different things in life. Again, some good, some bad. But all of that together, why has that happened? That has happened because God desires to be glorified. And whatever it is that he is doing, we must trust that in the end, again, it is our, for our good and for his glory. This past week, I was uh, reminded of something that as I was thinking about this passage and what, what we'd be processing, uh, I was reminded of something. You know, even if we reject that idea, 
Even if we reject the idea that God is going to be glorified, if we reject the idea that God is doing anything, if we reject the idea of God, period, that actually doesn't change anything about anything I just said. Even to reject that God exists still means that your life, in the end, will glorify him long-term. I don't know how that will work. I don't know what all that God is doing, but everything is ultimately for his glory. And here's what we have. Here's the choice that we have. We either have the opportunity to submit to that car, submit to the idea that God is working for his glory, or we can reject it and spend our entire lives resisting it, not ever really knowing what our ultimate purpose is. And I was reminded of the, the gravity of this situation this past week, when I was uh, reminded of someone um, who has, in recent days, rejected the idea of, of God and had for many years um, believed himself to be a Christian and in more recent days has rejected the claims of Christianity. And I was struck again as I was, again, as I was thinking about this passage, man, he's rejected it all and now his life is full of all kinds of angst. And he's in this season of desperately desiring to know the great purposes of life. And I just was struck with the idea, you've rejected the ultimate purpose of life, and yet your ultimate purpose in life hasn't changed. Nothing changed. So we have this decision to make. We have this decision to either submit to the fact that God is doing all that he is doing for, his, for our good, for his glory, and find comfort and rest and peace in that, or we can resist it and spend the rest of our lives in angst, searching for the very thing that I just explained. And so my encouragement for all of us would be to wrestle with that truth. To what extent do we believe that God is in control of all things, that he will be glorified in all things, and that that is ultimately the purpose of our lives, which is to give him and to bring him glory through our lives. And I'll tell you, when, when we submit to that idea, it's amazing how that can begin to shift our thinking to the circumstances of life. Again, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Because now everything we trust is going to bring him glory. Whatever your life circumstance might be, it changes the way, it ought to change the way you view it. So that now, if you are the top executive of a Fortune 500 downtown, or you're the janitor that cleans the building... Uh, or if you're single, or if you are married, if you're in a season of joy or in a season of despair, whatever the circumstances of life are, if this is true, then that circumstance, in the end, long term, will be for our good and for God's glory. And I hope that, that's, that this then brings us hope and rest and trust in the one who's called us his own. And so for us as a church, I think about a group of people that come together, trusting that God is going to be glorified in us personally, what that then means for our church as we come together to glorify and to honor him through the work of this church. I mean, imagine how that could reorient the vision of Redeemer East Harlem and the ways that we care for and serve our neighbors and one another when we trust that God is at work and that he will be glorified in all things. And so my prayer would simply be that we would all submit to this greater calling, this ultimate 
calling and rest in the fact that God is at work among us, that God is using the good, the bad, and the ugly ultimately in the end, long term, for our good and for his glory. With that, let's pray to him now. Father, God, I thank you that you are a transcendent, powerful God that uh, is beyond what we could possibly comprehend, the one who has created the universe. Uh, And yet, even though you are that powerful and mighty, you are also a close and intimate Father who by your Spirit is right here next to us even now. And Lord, I pray that we would approach you in both of those ways, that we would approach you as a God of power who is in control of all things, that's even taking the worst suffering imaginable, and in the end, somehow, in ways that we can't comprehend, using it for our good and for your glory. But you're also so close and intimate that even in the most difficult of times, your spirit is there to strengthen us and to remind us of your goodness and your compassion and your forgiveness, and your willingness to journey and walk with us through this life. You are truly glorious, and God, may our lives personally, and may the lives of all of us collectively, corporately as a church, may it bring you glory and honor. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.